Hi, welcome to another edition of the African American Hour. I'm Byron Buckner, bringing you readings from the following publications. Smithsonian Magazine, The New York Times, TheUndefeated.com, AudiophileMagazine.com, MilitaryTimes.com, and the United States Department of Defense. Next on today's program is a story from MilitaryTimes.com. The title is, Some Military Families of Color Report Racial Issues Affecting Career Decisions New Poll Finds. It was written by Karen Jowers and originally was published on February 6, 2022. The overwhelming majority of active duty service members of color report having positive military experiences, but they and family members also report discrimination, racial slurs, racial profiling, and safety concerns according to the results of a survey just released by Blue Star Families. Some of these families are making career decisions, such as whether to stay in the military or turn down orders to a new duty station, based on concerns related to their race or ethnicity. The number of active duty and veteran family member respondents in this survey is relatively small, and the findings can't be generalized to the entire population of these families, according to the researchers, but it's a starting point given the dearth of research on these communities. Of the 2,731 people who responded, 33% identified as active duty family respondents of color, including 303 service members and 622 spouses. In this survey, respondent of color refers to anyone who selected any race, ethnicity other than only white. According to the latest Defense Department demographics report, there are 415,414 active members who self-identify with groups in a racial minority. More than half of those identify as black or African-American. About 4 in 10 of those active duty respondents and more than half of veterans of color experience racially or ethnically based discrimination or harassment by peers at some point of their career, according to the survey, which was fielded in June and July of 2021. On the other hand, 7 in 10 active duty members of color said they are respected by their peers and feel a sense of belonging. And active duty families of color have fears about their safety even in the military community. Four in ten said they had feared for their safety in the military community at least once in the previous 18 months. About 20% of the active duty members of color said they'd been threatened or harassed five or more times in the previous 18 months. And 46% said they'd been the subject of racial slurs or off-color jokes at least once in that time frame. One in three black active duty family respondents reported being profiled by military or civilian law enforcement at least once between January 2020 and the time of the survey. Half of black active duty family respondents said they trust their local military law enforcement compared to about 30 percent who trust local civilian law enforcement. What's the problem? During a February 2nd event to release the results of the survey, retired Army Lieutenant General Thomas Bostick, whose heritage is part black and part Japanese, described an incident with military law enforcement when he was on active duty that involved his son, who was visiting from Stanford University. His son called him and said he was at the installation gate and needed help. I run to the gate and there are three policemen with their weapons drawn, pointing at him in the car and one is holding up my three-star placard. Bostick said. I walked up and said, what's the problem? He said, this young man has the placard of a three-star. There's no way this is his car. 
I grabbed the placard and I said, that's my placard. I worked about 30 years to earn that. That's my son and that's my car. So I want you to put your weapons down, relax, and I want you to tell me who your boss is. I had the rank to make change. If it was my dad, Master Sergeant Bostick, and this happened to him, he would just say, okay, I've been stepped on again, and he'd move out. But he wouldn't be able to challenge the system. The online survey isn't a random scientific survey. It was fielded to military families of color with the help of a marketing campaign targeted to those communities. But the results of the survey serve as an important foundation from which to begin difficult but necessary conversations about the experiences of military and veteran families of color, said Jennifer Aiken, co-director of Applied Research for Blue Star Families. Prior to the study, virtually no research had been done on military families of color, she said. The research was conducted with Syracuse University's Institute for Veterans and Military Families and is part of a broader effort of the past 14 months, including focus groups, to assess the needs of military families of color and come up with solutions to help military and civilian communities improve the quality of life for these military families. When military families don't feel supported or a sense of belonging in the community where they live, they aren't as resilient and, as a result, our military force isn't as ready as it can be, said Kathy Roth Duquette, CEO of Blue Star Families. But that feeling of inclusiveness and belonging in their local civilian community is missing for nearly half of the active duty family respondents of color. And researchers found that 16% of active duty family respondents feel uncomfortable or very uncomfortable in their local civilian community, with racism being the most common reason for that discomfort. Safety fears. There are real concerns about safety. More than half of active duty family respondents residing in the Midwest, West, and South reported fearing for their safety in their civilian community because of their race or ethnicity at least once between the beginning of 2020 and the time they took the survey in the summer of 2021. And 43% of those living in the Northeast reported the same safety fears. These families don't necessarily feel safe on their installations. About 41% reported they had feared for their safety at least once in their military community because of their race ethnicity since January 2020, a finding described as alarming by the researchers. When asked about these instances, respondents described general feelings of racism and discrimination, sometimes accompanied by overt symbolic displays, for example, the Confederate flag, and the discussion of politics in ways they viewed to be coded racism, the report stated. Over half of the 303 active duty members of color have considered discrimination and safety concerns when making decisions about installation preferences. The researchers don't have data on which installations are a concern, but said they expect to look further into this in the future. Some positive findings. 79% of active duty members of color said their experience in the military has had a positive influence on their professional growth. 61% said that the military is a place where they are able to perform to their full potential. 59% of those active duty members reported having allies in the workplace. 51% of active duty family respondents reported their financial situation is more stable than that of their friends and family of the same racial ethnic background who aren't in the military. Retired Army Lieutenant General Gwen Bingham, co-chair of the Blue Star Families Racial Equity and Inclusion Initiative, said at times during her career, I have personally felt the sting of exclusion and being made to feel inferior. But as an African-American woman who served in the Army for 38 years, she said, 
Part of the reason I served for so many years was that I felt that sense of belonging. I know how important it is for our service members and families to thrive, she said, adding that the benefits of this work will extend beyond military families of color. Through this work, we are addressing a blind spot that can help improve the quality of life for the majority of our force, she said. That was the story. Some military families of color report racial issues affecting career decisions, new poll finds. It appeared in MilitaryTimes.com on February 6th and was written by Karen Jowers. The next story in today's program is from the U.S. Department of Defense. The title is Pentagon Exhibit Honors Military Contributions of African Americans. It was published February 9th, 2022 on the defense.gov website. African Americans have served valiantly in military service from the colonial times to present day. Their service has been honored with a Pentagon exhibit that showcases their triumphs and struggles as well as the injustices committed against them. The exhibit spanning a corridor of the Pentagon is titled, If We Must Fight, African Americans in Defense of Our Nation. President Joe Biden visited the corridor last year shortly after becoming president. The corridor honors the long history of black Americans fighting for this country even when their contributions were not always recognized or honored appropriately, the president said at the time. The exhibit tells the story in the broader political, social, cultural, and economic context, explains the curator of the exhibit and subject matter expert, retired Army Colonel Kruwaski A. Salter, Ph.D. First name spelled capital K-R-E-W-A-S. K-Y. Showing the whole story, the tragedies and the triumphs, gives the viewer an important context into the larger question of why, he said. I want people, when they go through the corridor, to get a comprehensive story and hopefully they will be inspired, Salter said. And also, not only see that African Americans have served and always served, but so did all people of different races and ethnic groups and women throughout history. The exhibit includes modern-day milestones with the first black commander-in-chief, President Barack Obama, and the first black chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, Army General Colin L. Powell, who also went on to become the first black U.S. Secretary of State. Current Secretary of Defense Lloyd J. Austin III is featured in a photo when he was an Army general overseeing military operations in theater with then-Lieutenant General Vincent K. Brooks and Lieutenant General Dennis L. Villa. These are all powerful examples of the incredible contributions of African-Americans in military service to the nation, says project manager, retired Army Colonel Norvell Rock Dillard. This rich and accomplished history includes men, women, civilians and families, he adds. It includes the free and enslaved who fought in the colonial wars in the American Revolution, the black union regiments that fought for their own freedom in the Civil War, the courageous and groundbreaking service of African-Americans in World War I, World War II, the Korean and Vietnam Wars. The Buffalo Soldiers, the Tuskegee Airmen, the Montfort Point Marines, the Navy's first commissioned black officers known as the Golden Thirteen, Medal of Honor recipients, and the African-American women who served in World War II in Navy Waves, Coast Guard Spars, and the Women's Army Auxiliary Corps, later the Women's Army Corps, are all featured. But as African-Americans made incredible achievements and fought valiantly in wars, they faced terrible injustices and their own freedom was not fully realized, Dillard said. 
The exhibit shows the tragedies of slavery, Jim Crow racism, segregated military units, and the harsh and unequal treatment of blacks in America. The exhibit is extremely powerful because it tells the whole story in context of American history, according to the chief historian with the Office of the Secretary of Defense, Aaron R. Mahan, Ph.D. It is meant to show the truth and make people uncomfortable, she said, adding, it's that connection that makes the corridor more relatable and ultimately more meaningful in my view. The corridor was done in consultation with the historians of all the military services, according to exhibit designer Kelly Guerrero with the Office of the Secretary of Defense Graphics Office. Guerrero sought to include content to create a connection with the visitors. In exhibits, I want the viewer to see themselves or see their own family members, he said, adding he wants people to somehow identify with the content as more than just a distant historical event. The current corridor is a complete renovation of the original African-American in defense of our nation corridor that was dedicated 25 years ago on February 19, 1997, as the brainchild of Claiborne Houghton, who was also featured on the wall as one of the first black Department of Defense charter members of the Senior Executive Service, notes Dillard. The grand opening for this revamped exhibit was put on hold because of the coronavirus pandemic, he says, but organizers hope to have a formal opening someday. There are four images that go along with this story. The first image shows a Marine corporal in his dress blue uniform talking to the head of the Department of Defense, the President of the United States, and the Vice President of the United States. Behind them, is a general officer in uniform. Behind them all on the wall is an exhibit that at the top says, Breaking Barriers. The caption to this photo reads, Marine Corps Lance Corporal Cordell Waklatsky, capital W-A-K-L-A-T-S-K-I, serves as tour guide as President Joe Biden, Vice President Kamala Harris, Secretary of Defense Lloyd J. Austin III, and Chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, Army General Mark A. Milley, visit the Pentagon exhibit honoring the military service of African Americans, Washington, D.C., February 10, 2021. The next image is a picture of seven military officers sitting in high-backed office chairs. The caption reads, The Pentagon exhibit honoring African Americans in military service features a photo of Secretary of Defense Lloyd J. Austin III as an Army general overseeing military operations in theater with Army Lieutenant General Vincent K. Brooks and Army Lieutenant General Dennis L. Villa. The next image shows four people walking down a hallway looking at an exhibit. The caption reads, President Joe Biden, Vice President Kamala Harris, Secretary of Defense Lloyd J. Austin III, and Chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff Army General Mark A. Milley visit the Pentagon exhibit honoring the military service of African Americans, Washington, D.C., February 10, 2021. The final image is a picture that shows four people in uniform. From left to right, there's a drummer boy from the Civil War era, a soldier holding a rifle from the World War I era, a woman from the Women's Army Corps in dress uniform from the World War II era, and a soldier in the field holding an artillery shell that says, Happy Easter Adolf, written on the side of it. The caption reads, 
A graphic depicting African Americans who have served in the military is shown on a panel of the exhibit at the Pentagon. That was a story from the U.S. Department of Defense and their defense.gov website. The title of the article is Pentagon Exhibit Honors Military Contributions of African Americans. It was originally published February 9, 2022. Next on today's program is an article from Smithsonian Magazine. The title is Persuading Lincoln, Black Heroes of the Civil War. It was written by Jonathan W. White and was originally published January 1, 2022. Before dawn on May 13, 1862, Robert Small stealthily took command of a Confederate steamer, the CSS Planter, and steered it out of Charleston Harbor. The 23-year-old, who had worked as a slave aboard the vessel, brought 15 other enslaved people with him, including his wife and their two young children. Smalls knew he might be killed by Confederate guards as he attempted to reach the Union's fleet off the Atlantic coast. Words of Smalls' daring escape quickly spread throughout the North. In a report that merged admiration with racial bigotry, the New York Tribune proclaimed, This man, though black, is a hero, one of the few history will delight to honor. He has done something for his race and for the world of mankind. On May 30th, Abraham Lincoln signed a law awarding prize money to Smalls for delivering the planter and its cargo to federal authorities. The influential minister Henry McNeil Turner called Smalls a living example of unquestionable African heroism. In August, Smalls traveled to Washington, D.C., where he met with Lincoln at the White House, perhaps the most consequential meeting Lincoln had with an African-American in the first two years of his administration a critical period in Lincoln's evolving policy on black citizenship. In the ensuing months and years, arguments by African-Americans who visited Lincoln and the president's willingness to listen would change the course of history. While many historians and biographers have traced the evolution of Lincoln's sentiments about emancipation and equality for African-Americans, few have recognized the central ways that Lincoln's personal interactions with black Americans from Smalls to Union Army Surgeon Anderson Ruffin Abbott, the first black Canadian to graduate from medical school, shaped his thinking during Smalls' first meeting with Lincoln, he urged the president to allow black men to join the Union Army. Since the beginning of the Civil War, Lincoln had rejected black volunteers, in part because he had no confidence they would fight well. But after meeting Smalls, who had secured his own liberty with such bravery, Lincoln finally embraced the idea of enlisting black troops, and Smalls departed Washington, D.C., bearing a letter from the War Department that authorized the raising of black volunteers in South Carolina. Thanks to Smalls, Lincoln had come to see that arming black men was not a question of sentiment or taste, but one of physical force. The service of black soldiers, in short, was essential to winning the war. Still, after African-Americans were allowed to join the Union Army, they didn't receive equal treatment. They served in segregated units, often received subpar weapons and equipment, and were frequently tasked with doing menial labor, such as digging ditches or building fortifications rather than fighting. Further, 
Federal authorities were determined to underpay black soldiers by designating them as laborers rather than soldiers. They enlisted expecting $13 a month, but received only $10 a month. And unlike white soldiers, had another $3 deducted from their pay as a clothing allowance. A soldier in the famous 54th Massachusetts Infantry wrote directly to Lincoln, We appeal to you, sir, as the executive of the nation, to have us justly dealt with. They also faced much steeper consequences if captured. Confederate authorities threatened to kill or enslave black soldiers taken alive on the battlefield. On August 10, 1863, Frederick Douglass met with Lincoln and urged him to protect black soldiers from Confederate threats by retaliating in kind and degree without delay upon Confederate prisoners in its hands. He also pressed Lincoln to give black soldiers equal pay. Lincoln considered retaliation a terrible remedy and said that if he could get hold of the Confederate soldiers who had been guilty of treating colored soldiers as felons, he could easily retaliate. But he did not wish to punish soldiers for the heinous practices of their political leaders. He didn't wish to hang the soldiers for a crime perpetrated by others. The president also said the lower pay rate was a temporary but necessary concession to white racism a way to ease white Northerners into supporting the enlistment of black soldiers. Nevertheless, Lincoln assured Douglas that black soldiers would ultimately receive the same pay. Douglas had his doubts, writing, While I could not agree with Lincoln on every point, I could not but respect his humane spirit. In 1864, Lincoln did sign a law equalizing the pay of those black soldiers who had been free before the war. That year, numerous other black advocates went to Lincoln to make direct claims for full citizenship. On March 3rd, two Creoles from New Orleans visited the White House to hand Lincoln a petition calling for wealthy, free black men in their state, which was now under union control, to have the right to vote. In language that echoed the Declaration of Independence, they told Lincoln they were ready to sacrifice their fortunes and their lives for the country and the Constitution. The petitioners, Arnold Bertoneau, capital B-E-R-T-O-N-N-E-A-U, and Jean-Baptiste Rudanez, capital R-O-U-D-A-N-E-Z, noted that the free black population of New Orleans had spilled their blood for the Union cause, just as their forebearers had done during the War of 1812. We are men, treat us as such, they said, as they called for those inalienable rights which belong to the condition of citizens of the great American Republic. The petition bore around 1,000 signatures, including those of 28 black veterans who had fought with Andrew Jackson at the Battle of New Orleans in 1815. In response to this petition, Lincoln told his visitors that he must first finish the big job on his hands of crushing the rebellion. If giving African-Americans the right to vote became necessary to close the war, he would not hesitate to support it, he said, for he saw no reason why intelligent black men should not vote. But this was not a military question, and he believed that it had to be handled by civil authorities in Louisiana. Still, he assured his guests that he would support their request whenever they could show that black suffrage would help restore the Union. A week later, on March 10th, Rudinez and Bertineau submitted a new petition that reframed and expanded their request. Now they asked for the right to vote for all black men in Louisiana, including those who were poor or uneducated 
or had been born into bondage. Expanding suffrage in this way, they contended, would give full effect to all the union feeling in the rebel states in order to secure the permanence of the free institutions and loyal governments now organized therein. Such rights especially ought to be given to black men who have vindicated their right to vote by bearing arms. In other words, a crucial way to subdue disloyal sentiment in the South would be to create a new loyal black electorate. Rudinez and Bertineau had crafted a rationale that connected black suffrage to winning the war and sustaining the peace. Black voters would help create and maintain pro-union majorities in the South. Lincoln found the argument compelling and almost immediately adopted their view. On March 13th, he sent a letter to Louisiana's governor-elect, Michael Hahn, suggesting that black men who were intelligent or who have fought gallantly in our ranks be granted the franchise. Such voters, Lincoln said, would probably help in some trying time to come to keep the jewel of liberty within the family of freedom. Lincoln's eloquence captured the idea that America wouldn't be a truly free country until African Americans were fully integrated into civic life. He had hinted at this idea a few months earlier at Gettysburg, saying this nation under God shall have a new birth of freedom in order that government of the people, by the people, for the people shall not perish from the earth. Part of that new birth meant counting African Americans among the people. While most white Southerners were fighting to destroy the Republic, Lincoln had become convinced that African Americans would vote to uphold the principles the nation was founded on and that black political participation would be essential for maintaining Republican government in America during Reconstruction and beyond. The following month, in April 1864, a delegation of black North Carolinians asked Lincoln to support black suffrage in their state. Led by a former enslaved man named Abraham H. Galloway, the delegation's petition quoted the Declaration of Independence and reminded Lincoln that free black men had enjoyed voting rights in North Carolina from 1776 to 1835. They asked him to finish the noble work you have begun by granting that greatest of privileges to exercise the right to suffrage. The petitioners pledge to fight the rebellion until every cloud of war shall disappear and your administration stand justified by the sure results that will follow. Lincoln told his visitors he had labored hard for the good of the colored race and would continue to do so. He also assured them of his sympathy in the struggle they were making for their rights. But as voting was a state matter, he said it would have to be attended to once North Carolina resumed its place in the Union. Seeing the bravery of black men in uniform as well as meeting with African Americans had transformed Lincoln's thinking on equality. As a young politician in the 1830s and 1840s, he had ridiculed the thought of black men wielding the ballot. As recently as the Lincoln-Douglas debates in 1858, he said he opposed making voters or jurors of Negroes. Now, less than seven years later, he would take the opposite position in a very public way. On April 11, 1865, Lincoln delivered in a speech from the White House balcony publicly calling for educated black men and those who had served as soldiers to be given the right to vote. It had taken him some time to reach this decision. It would be the last speech he ever gave. John Wilkes Booth, listening in the audience below, 
growled that Lincoln was calling for African-American citizenship. Now, by God, I'll put him through, Booth said. The actor gunned down Lincoln three days later. But Booth was powerless to stop the forces that black petitioners had set in motion during the Civil War. In 1870, the 15th Amendment was ratified, making it illegal for a state to deprive citizens of the right to vote on account of race, color, or previous condition of servitude. Over the ensuing years, black voters would help elect hundreds of African Americans to political office at all levels, including Robert Smalls, the former slave who had secured his own freedom aboard the planter in 1862, represented South Carolina in the U.S. House of Representatives for 10 years starting in 1875. There are several photographs and illustrations that come with this reading. It starts with an illustration of four men. In the middle of the illustration are drawings of three men. In the background is a ship on the ocean. In the foreground is the illustration of the fourth man, a silhouette of President Abraham Lincoln. The caption reads, Arnold Bertineau of New Orleans, Robert Smalls of South Carolina, and Anderson Ruffin Abbott of Toronto. The first photograph is of 26 uniformed African-American Civil War soldiers standing at ease with their rifles. In front of them is a black NCO with a sword. The caption reads, Company E of the 4th U.S. Colored Infantry at Fort Lincoln in the District of Columbia. Next is a painting of President Abraham Lincoln. The caption reads, a 1918 portrait of Lincoln highlights the final lines of his second inaugural address. Since the words to the inaugural address are visible, I'm going to read what's at the bottom of this picture. With malice toward none, with charity for all, with firmness in the right, as God gives us to see the right, let us strive on to finish the work we are in, to bend up the nation's wounds, to care for him who shall have borne the battle and for his widow and his orphan, to do all which may achieve and cherish a just and lasting peace among ourselves and with all nations. The next picture is an 1860s photograph of the executive mansion. There is a statue of President Thomas Jefferson on the lawn. The caption reads, The White House, pictured at the time of Lincoln's first inauguration, the statue of Jefferson on the lawn now sits in the Capitol Statuary Hall. Finally, there's a sidebar to this story. It contains photographs of three men and one woman. The sidebar reads, Helping to save the Union, saluting some of the often overlooked black heroes of the Civil War. Next to the first picture of a man, it reads, Alexander Augusta, Doctor's Orders. Schooled as a physician in Canada, the Virginia native wrote to Lincoln in 1863 offering his expertise. The first commissioned black medic to serve in the Union Army, he was also its highest ranking black officer. In 1869, Augusta joined Howard University as the nation's first black professor of medicine. Next is a picture of the woman wearing a bonnet. It reads, Susie King Taylor, Spreading Literacy. As a child in Georgia, Taylor learned to read and write in secrecy before escaping slavery in 1862 with the help of her uncle. 
At 14, she joined one of the Union Army's first black regiments serving as a nurse, cook, and launderer, and teaching formerly enslaved soldiers to read. After the war, she opened a school for freedmen's children. Next is a picture of a man, Abraham Galloway, the secret agent. Born into bondage in North Carolina, Galloway escaped at 19 in the cargo hold of a northbound ship, but returned to the South several times to lead others to freedom. When war broke out, he served as a spy master running networks in Louisiana, Mississippi, and North Carolina. In 1868, he won a North Carolina state Senate seat. Finally, we have the picture of the soldier, Christian Fleetwood, a man of honor. Fleetwood founded one of the nation's first African-American newspapers in Baltimore before joining the Union Army in 1863. He distinguished himself particularly in the Battle of Chaffin's Farm, Virginia, in September 1864, where his courage earned him a Medal of Honor, one of just 25 awarded to black soldiers in the Civil War. After Appomattox, Fleetwood served in the War Department. That was the article, Persuading Lincoln, Black Heroes of the Civil War, from Smithsonian Magazine's January 1, 2022 edition. It was written by Jonathan W. White. The next story in today's program is from the New York Times and its NewYorkTimes.com website. The title is Black Farmers Fear Foreclosure as Debt Relief Remains Frozen. It was written by Alan Rappaport and was originally published February 21st, 2022. For Brandon Smith, a fourth-generation cattle rancher from Texas, the $1.9 trillion stimulus package that President Biden signed into law nearly a year ago was long-awaited relief. Little did he know how much longer he would have to wait. The legislation included $4 billion of debt forgiveness for black and other socially disadvantaged farmers, a group that has endured decades of discrimination from banks and the federal government. Mr. Smith, a black father of four who owns about $200,000 in outstanding loans on his ranch, quickly signed and returned documents to the Agriculture Department last year, formally accepting the debt relief. He then purchased more equipment for his ranch, believing he had been given a financial lifeline. Instead, Mr. Smith has fallen deeper into debt. Months after signing the paperwork, he received a notice informing him that the federal government intended to accelerate foreclosure on his 46-acre property and cattle if he did not start making payments on the loans he believed he had been forgiven. I trusted the government that we had a deal, and down here at the end of the day, the rug gets pulled out from under me, Mr. Smith, 43, said in an interview. Black farmers across the nation have yet to see any of Mr. Biden's promised relief. While the president has pledged to pursue policies to promote racial equity and correct decades of discrimination, legal issues have complicated that goal. In May 2021, the Agriculture Department started sending letters to borrowers who were eligible to have their debt cleared, asking them to sign and return forms confirming their balances. The payments, which also are supposed to cover tax liabilities and fees associated with clearing the debt, were expected to come in phases beginning in June. But the entire initiative has been stymied amid lawsuits from white farmers and groups representing them that question whether the government could offer debt relief based on race. Courts in Wisconsin and Florida have issued preliminary injunctions against the initiative, siding with plaintiffs who argued that the debt relief amounted to discrimination and could therefore be illegal. 
A class action lawsuit against the USDA is proceeding in Texas this year. The Biden administration has not appealed the injunctions, but a spokeswoman for the Agriculture Department said it was continuing to defend the program in the courts as the cases move forward. The legal limbo has created new and unexpected financial strains for black farmers, many of whom have been unable to make investments in their businesses given ongoing uncertainty about their debt loads. It also poses a political problem for Mr. Biden, who was propelled to power by black voters and now must make good on promises to improve their fortunes. The law was intended to help remedy years of discrimination that non-white farmers have endured, including land theft and the rejection of loan applications by banks and the federal government. The program designated aid to about 15,000 borrowers who receive loans directly from the federal government or have their bank loans guaranteed by the USDA. Those eligible included farmers and ranchers who have been subject to racial or ethnic prejudice, including those who are Black, Native American, Alaskan Native, Asian American, Pacific Islander, or Hispanic. After the initiative was rolled out last year, it met swift opposition. Banks were unhappy that the loans would be repaid early, depriving them of interest payments. Groups of white farmers in Wisconsin, North Dakota, Oregon, and Illinois sued the Agriculture Department, arguing that offering debt relief on the basis of skin color is discriminatory, suggesting that a successful black farmer could have his debts cleared while a struggling white farmer could go out of business. America First Legal, a group led by the former Trump administration official Stephen Miller, filed a lawsuit making a similar argument in U.S. District Court for the Northern District of Texas. Last June, before the money started flowing, a federal judge in Florida blocked the program on the basis that it applied strictly on racial grounds, irrespective of any other factor. The delays have angered the black farmers that the Biden administration and Democrats in Congress were trying to help. They argue that the law was poorly written and that the White House is not defending it forcefully enough in court out of fear that a legal defeat could undermine other policies that are predicated on race. Those concerns became even more pronounced late last year when the government sent thousands of letters to minority farmers who were behind on their loan payments warning that they face foreclosure. The letters were sent automatically to any borrowers who were past due on their loans, including about a third of the 15,000 socially disadvantaged farmers who applied for the debt relief according to the Agriculture Department. Leonard Jackson, a cattle farmer from Muskogee, Oklahoma, received such a letter despite being told by the USDA that he did not need to make loan payments because his $235,000 in debt would be paid off by the government. The letter was jarring for Mr. Jackson, whose father, a wheat and soybean farmer, had his farm equipment foreclosed on by the government years earlier. The prospect of losing his 33 cows, house, and trailer was unfathomable. They said that they were paying off everybody's loans and not to make payments, and then they sent this, Mr. Jackson, 55, said. The legal fight over the funds has stirred widespread confusion with black and other farmers stuck in the middle. This year, the Federation of Southern Cooperatives has been fielding calls from minority farmers who said their financial problems have been compounded. It has become even harder for them to get access to credit now, they say, that the fate of the debt relief is unclear. It has definitely caused a very significant panic and a lot of distress among our members, said 
Dania Davey, Director of Land Retention and Advocacy at the Federation of Southern Cooperatives and Land Assistance Fund. The Agriculture Department said that it was required by law to send the warnings, but that the government had no intention of foreclosing on farms, citing a moratorium on such action that was put in place early last year because of the pandemic. After the New York Times inquired about the foreclosure letters, the USDA sent borrowers who had received notices another letter late last month telling them to disregard the foreclosure threat. We want borrowers to know the bottom line is actions such as acceleration and foreclosure remain suspended for direct loan borrowers due to the pandemic, Kate Waters, a department spokeswoman, said. We remain under the moratorium and we will continue to communicate with our borrowers so they understand their rights and understand their debt servicing options. The more than 2,000 minority farmers who receive private loans that are guaranteed by the USDA are not protected by the federal moratorium and could still face foreclosure. Once their moratorium ends, farmers will need to resume making their payments if the debt relief program or an alternative is not in place. Some black farmers argue that the Agriculture Department, led by Secretary Tom Vilsack, was too slow to disperse the debt relief and allow critics time to mount a legal assault on the law. The Biden administration has been left with few options but to let the legal process play out, which could take months or years. The White House had been hopeful that a new measure in Mr. Biden's sweeping social policy and climate bill would ultimately provide the farmers the debt relief they had been expecting. But that bill has stalled in the Senate and is unlikely to pass in its current form. While we continue to defend in court the relief in the American Rescue Plan, getting the broader relief provision that the House passed signed into law remains the surest and quickest way to help farmers in economic distress across the nation, including thousands and thousands of farmers of color, Gene Sperling, the White House's pandemic relief czar, said in a statement. For black farmers who have seen their ranks fall from more than a million to fewer than 40,000 in the last century amid industry consolidation and onerous loan terms, the disappointment is not surprising. John Boyd, president of the National Black Farmers Association, said that rather than hearing about more government reports on racial equity, black farmers want to see results. We need implementation, action, and resources to farm, Mr. Boyd said. There's one photograph that goes along with this story. It shows a man in a black shirt with a black hat. And he has on a leather belt with a big buckle. He's standing out in a pasture. There's a cow behind him. The sky is blue. The trees are bare. The caption reads, I trusted the government that we had a deal. And down here at the end of the day, the rug gets pulled out from under me, said Brandon Smith a cattle rancher in Bastrop, Texas. There's one more photograph that goes along with this story. It is a picture of farm equipment in a yard. There's a backhoe, a tractor, a trailer, and an outhouse, all sitting under a big tree. Mr. Smith bought more equipment for his ranch when he thought aid was finally on the way, but now he's deeper in debt. That was the story Black Farmers Fear Foreclosure as Debt Relief Remains Frozen. It originally appeared in the New York Times, nytimes.com website, and was written by Alan Rappaport 
and was originally published February 21st, 2022. Up next in today's program is an obituary for James M. Tume, capital M-T-U-M-E. It's from TheUndefeated.com. The title is, From Miles Davis to Biggie, James M. Tume was a Renaissance man of music. The subtitle is, Best known for Juicy Fruit, the Grammy winner was respected across the musical spectrum. It was written by Keith Murphy and was originally published January 12, 2022. James M. Tume defied categorization. During his five-decade career, the Grammy-winning jazz percussionist was a songwriter, producer, band leader, radio talk show host, political activist, and the musical foundation of arguably hip-hop's greatest rags-to-riches anthem. Indeed, the Philadelphia native who died January 9th at 76 was a disruptor even as a child. The first time I realized my musical tastes were a little different than the rest of the kids, M. Tume recalled during a 2014 Red Bull Music Academy interview, I remember I was in sixth grade and everybody had to bring two records. I brought Frankie Lyman, Why Do Fools Fall in Love, and then I brought Miles Davis. The kids, everybody was really getting off with Frankie Lyman. When they put Miles Davis on, it was like Dr. Death had come in the room. Then it was that I realized jazz was an acquired taste and I was very fortunate to have been born in that environment. It's almost like having both worlds to draw from. Mtume would later play a prominent role in Davis's excursion into fusing jazz with funk on the groundbreaking and polarizing 1972 album On the Corner. The jazz giant praised Mtume in his 1989 autobiography, Miles, for helping his young unit sound blacker. With Mtume and Pete Cosby joining us, most of the European sensibilities were gone from the band, Davis said. Now the band settled down into a deep African thing, a deep African-American groove with a lot of emphasis on drums and rhythm and not on individual solos. Mtume spent a lifetime expanding the boundaries of music. During a memorable 2010 debate at the Amistad Center for Art and Culture in Hartford, Connecticut, and with critic Stanley Crouch, a jazz purist, he passionately pushed back against Crouch's dismissal of Davis's electric period as the trumpeter's blatant pursuit of selling out. We would play a sold-out concert. Young people were starting to gravitate to that music, and Toomey recalled of the scene sparked by Davis's 1970 jazz rock fusion album, Bitches Brew. But Miles said, we are losing young black people. He said, I want to fuse the music that would also draw them in. See, for some reason, when you start to do contemporary music, it's almost like you reduce. Well, if you are doing something popular, it's some kind of way more trivial. The thing is, Miles wanted to reach that, and he wanted to bring more young black people in. And that's what started to happen when On the Corner came out. The Restless Spirit switched lanes in 1983 with his self-titled R&B band, Mtume. The group scored a number one Billboard Hot Black Singles with the sparse drum machine propelled Juicy Fruit. A little over a decade later, Mtume's platinum-selling radio hit would be sampled liberally by one of the notorious B.I.G.'s debut singles, Juicy. Mtume recalled his first meeting with then-Bad Boy Records honcho Sean Puffy Combs and an unknown Christopher Wallace brokered by Uptown Records CEO Andre Harrell. So Biggie came in and we hugged, and Tume recounted during an appearance on Sway's Universe a few years back. He was a sweetheart, man, so Puff says, I want to sample Juicy Fruit. Puff and I worked it out. He said, you get a dollar, I get 50 cents. 
Why was that deep? Because back then, a lot of the cats that was creating the music wasn't getting paid. Like many musicians of his generation, and two may believe artists deserve to be compensated for their sample work during rap's golden era. If you're going to use somebody's music, you gotta pay them or put your own music on it, he said. That's like if I took your rap and put it on top of my song, that don't make it my song, that's our song. M. Tume's music will go on to be looped by the likes of Jay-Z, Nas, Redman, Lil' Kim, Gene Gray, Common, and Fat Joe. Unlike some of his old-school peers, he saw hip-hop as a viable art form, crediting his son with helping him learn how to listen to the counterculture soundtrack. M. Tume even likened Public Enemy's Bring the Noise, a 1988 track exploding with a complex collage of patchwork sounds to the harmonic dissonance of jazz pianist Theolonius Monk. This was high praise from the son of legendary saxophonist Jimmy Heath. Born James Heath Jr., M. Tume was raised by his mother, Bertha Foreman, and Philly pianist James Foreman. Just imagine, you're 9, 10 years old, and there's Dizzy Gillespie, Thelonious Monk, Sonny Rollins, M. Tume said of a household frequently visited by a who's who of jazz royalty. While M. Tume was blessed with a musical gene, he was also a standout swimmer who attended California's Pasadena City College on a scholarship. While there, he became immersed in the late 60s black power movement, joining the US organization led by activist Milana Karinga, who would go on to conceive the Kwanzaa holiday. This was the period when James changed his last name to Mtume, which means messenger in Swahili. In 1969, Mtume made his album debut on his uncle Albert Tutti Heath's Kawaita, featuring Herbie Hancock and Don Cherry. In 1972, he released his Mtume Umoja Ensemble Band-led record, Alekebu Lan, Land of the Blacks, capital A-L-K-E-B-U-L-A-N. Mtume recorded and toured as a percussionist working with Davis, McCoy Tyner, Rollins, Ramsey Lewis, Pharaoh Sanders, Gato Barbieri, Lonnie Liston-Smith, and others. It was time for a shift in the late 1970s as M. Tume linked up with longtime musical partner Reggie Lucas, whom he had previously played with in Davis's band. The duo wrote Roberta Flack and Donny Hathaway's classic 1978 R&B ballad, The Closer I Get to You, which became a crossover hit on the pop charts and the joyous Back Together Again. There were more artistic and commercial triumphs that M. Tume coined Sophistifunk, most notably Phyllis Hyman's romantic dance floor stunner, you Know How to Love Me, 1979, and Stephanie Mills' Grammy-winning Never Knew Love Like This Before, 1980. M. Tume, the band, continued the composer's momentum, staying busy into the next decade. He also flexed his prodigious chops as the music supervisor on the 90s TV police drama New York Undercover. M. Tume also produced neo-soul originator D'Angelo's cover of Eddie Kendrick's Girl, You Need a Change of Mind, 1996, and the queen of hip-hop soul, Mary J. Blige's Our Love, 1997. At the same time, he was passionate about discussing current events. Serving as co-host on New York's long-running 98.7 KISS FM live call-in radio show, The Open Line, where M. Tume tackled such issues as police brutality, the build-up to the Iraq War, and presidential politics. Following his death, an outpouring of tributes flooded social media, from Chuck D. of Public Enemy to heartfelt words from Lisa Lucas, the daughter of Mtume's songwriting brother and spirit, Reggie Lucas. Roots drummer Questlove posted on Twitter, It's really not doing justice listing accomplishments. Thank you, James and Tume, for all the wisdom and love and respect you've shown me and my brothers over the years. On Instagram, 
Mills called him Tume an amazing music mind. And influential hip-hop producer DJ Premier, who sampled from Tume's score for the 1986 film adaptation of Richard Wright's landmark novel Native Son, praised him as an icon. Last year, Tume made his last public appearance on DJ Cassidy's Pass the Mic series with vocalist Tabitha Agi for a spirited performance of Juicy Fruit. It called to mind his Red Bull Music Academy interview from several years ago. If my music has inspired anybody, the thing I would want them to be inspired to do is pick up the baton because this race is not finished, he said. All you need is to have your imagination excited. There are two photos that accompany this obituary. The first is a black and white photograph of James Mtume holding a microphone and pointing at an audience. He has dreadlocks and is wearing a light colored jacket. The caption reads, James Mtume performs at the Hammersmith Odeon on January 27, 1985 in London. The next color photograph is of a band performing on stage. There's a trumpeter wearing a white jacket, an electric bass player wearing white overalls and a straw hat, a drummer surrounded by cymbals, and a conga player wearing a green headband and a blue t-shirt. The caption reads, Trumpeter Miles Davis performs with percussionist James Mtume at the Montreux Jazz Festival in Montreux, Switzerland on July 8, 1973. That was an obituary from TheUndefeated.com. The title was, From Miles Davis to Biggie, James Mtume was a Renaissance Man of Music. It was written by Keith Murphy and was originally published January 12, 2022. Up next in today's African American Hour is an audiobook review. The name of the audiobook is The Last Slave Ship, the true story of how Clotilda was found, her descendants, and an extraordinary reckoning. It was written by Ben Rains and read by Kevin R. Free. It falls into the category of history and takes 8.5 hours to listen to. This audiobook was originally published in 2022. This review comes from audiophilemagazine.com and was published in February of 2022. This audiobook recounts the voyage of the Clotilda, the last slave ship to bring enslaved people from Africa to the U.S. But the story goes far beyond that one aspect. The lives of several of the Africans on board before and after the ocean trip are the primary focus of the work. Kevin Free does a first-rate job of narrating this work. He presents the story in an easy-to-follow tone, made even easier by the author's journalistic style of writing. Free alters his tone when quoting the former enslaved people directly, an effective technique without any hint of stereotype. His facility with foreign names and locations also makes listening easier. In all, it's a compelling story told well. That was a review of the audiobook, The Last Slave Ship, the true story of how Clotilda was found, her descendants, and an extraordinary reckoning, written by Ben Rains. This audiobook review was originally published on the audiophilemagazine.com website in February of 2022. Next is an audiobook review from audiophilemagazine.com that was originally published in February of 2022. The audiobook is Mutiny on the Rising Sun, a tragic tale of slavery, smuggling, and chocolate. Written by Jarrett Ross Hardesty and read by Joe Baird. It falls into the category of history 
it should take approximately six hours to listen to. And the audiobook was published in 2021. Joe Barrett uses a gritty voice to narrate this tale of the June 1st, 1743 mutiny on the colonial merchant ship Rising Sun. The ship was involved in the sometimes illegal trade among the Dutch colony of Suriname off the northeast coast of South America, Barbados, Boston, and Western Europe. Subtitled A Tragic Tale of Slavery, Smuggling, and Chocolate, the audiobook provides listeners with a complex history of 18th century trading and the origins of American capitalism. Barrett's performance is unemotional and often grating as he recites details of the ruthless mutiny during which the captain is murdered. Barrett barely pauses to breathe as he recounts minute details of the ship owners' lives, the tangled web of the slave trade, illicit commerce, and their repercussions. That was a review of the audiobook Mutiny on the Rising Sun, a tragic tale of slavery, smuggling, and chocolate, written by Jared Ross Hardesty and read by Joe Barrett. That's all the time we have for the African American Hour. Rosemarie will be here next week. My name is Byron Buckner. Thanks for joining me.